Welcome, 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 welcome everybody to the Neurological Deep Dive Podcast. I am your host, Ferret Fawns, and I appreciate you tuning in, and I hope you enjoyed the last episode. This will be part two of the great horror of Revelation 17, part two, by Gospel Dawn and the Gospel Hour. Thank you, Fawns, for featuring the Gospel Hour with Dawn. Now, last time we talked about the great horror of Revelation. Revelation 17, that is. We mentioned we're trying now to identify the great whore. And the word whore basically means harlot. And we mentioned in part one that this harlot, in trying to identify her, it, it mentions her as an unfaithful woman. That's in 17, uh, Revelation 17, verse 1. We also mentioned that she sits upon many waters, meaning the waters were the peoples and multitudes of nations and tongues. That was number two. Number three, we mentioned that the great whore has an illicit connection and a powerful influence over many kings and political rulers all over the world. And it says that in chapter 17, verse 18, where it says, The woman which thou sawest is that great city which reigneth over the kings of the earth. And then we mention identifier number four, and it is this. The woman of Revelation 17 has a corrupting influence over the inhabitants of the earth. And you read that in Revelation chapter 17, verse 2. And we now we're talking about some of Rome's uh, secret societies and agencies. And we already mentioned the Knights of Malta that was founded around the 11th century. I believe the Knights of Malta has also been referred to as the Knights Templar. And then I, I talked about the Society of Loyola, which would be the Jesuits. And now I'm going to talk about the Illuminati. This order, the Illuminati, was founded in about, I believe, in 1776. Everything I've read says that was the date it was founded by a Jesuit named Adam Weishaupt, or Weishaupt. I'm not sure how you say it. But he was either a former Jesuit or he was a Jesuit all along while he formed this. I'm not sure about that. But he, he was trained in a Jesuit school. That's pretty clear. And the purpose of the Illuminati, by the way, the word Illuminati means enlightened ones. You see, they, they are enlightened and we the people are the dummies. Uh, that's the way they see it. So they, they are the enlightened ones in their mind. And their purpose is to destroy the family unit, to destroy property rights, national boundaries, freedom of speech, freedom of association. They're out to destroy the right to bear arms, the right of privacy, representative government, they don't like that, patriotism, education, and especially biblical Christianity. And another thing they want to destroy is liberty of conscience. And these are all things that the Roman church is also opposed to. So this group, the Illuminati, is committed to the promoting of a satanic new world order. They don't like us to call it what it really is. What it is, is it's only going back to the dark ages, but they want to call it new. But in reality, it's as old as, like someone has said, it's as old as Methuselah. And uh, it, it sends back for a long time. So there's nothing new about the New World Order. But that's what they want to promote. They call it the New World Order. And they want to promote a, an order wherein the rights to life, liberty, conscience, and property are infringed. The song by uh, John Lennon called Imagine encapsulates the aims of Illuminism. 
or you could call it communism. And uh, of course, Rome is promoting this, both overtly as well as covertly. And they promote it in many ways. So that's the Illuminati. Another one of the agents of Rome is the Club of Rome. Apparently that was founded in 1968. It's a think tank of the Vatican, founded in Rome, Italy. They use environmental issues such as climate change to decenter or, or rather to centralize power and to confiscate land. They oppose Christianity and they oppose freedom and the middle class and they want to control the people by through environmental concerns. In other words, the sky is going to fall, so we're, we're going to have to stop you from using cars and, and, and uh, using energy and things like that. So it's, it's a way to control the masses. But this is the Club of Rome. It's one of their agencies. Another agency of this whore of Babylon is the Bilderberg Group, and that was founded in 1954, I believe. This group was founded by Prince Bernhard of, Nether of the Netherlands, and he was a Knights of Malta. And it began at a, at a hotel in the Netherlands where a meeting of pro-Vatican elites took place. They meet yearly in secret with high security, and it's for the purpose to discuss global control, cashless society, and things like, things like that. It's very secretive. Another one of their groups would be the Skull and Bones Society, founded in 1832. This secret society at Yale University is an arm of the Illuminati. George Bush, who was a Republican, was a member, and so was John Kerry, who was a Democrat, was a member of the Skull and Bones. And, of course, they ran against each other. So you can see how powers that be are being chosen by the, these kinds of people. Another group would be Freemasonry. This secret society has at least 33 degrees. One 33rd degree Mason was Aleister Crowley, who was a famous Satanist who died in 1947. And he was, of course, a Satan worshiper. The higher degrees of, the, of Freemasonry have secrets that the lower degrees do not know. That's how they exist. That's how they're able to have power. In 1814, the Jesuits were reorganized and approved by the Pope. That is about when the Jesuits and the Illuminati began to infiltrate Freemasonry. Uh, some people say it was earlier than that, like 1778, because the Illuminati had been founded at that time. So the Illuminati and, and the Jesuits are very much the same kind of people. So they infiltrated Freemasonry after the founding father of the, the founding of America as, as a rule. The founding fathers of America, of which a few were early American Masons, were not part of European Jesuit-influenced Masonry. So the early American Masons, such as Ben Franklin, Patrick Henry, George Washington, and others, they had much respect for Bible principles, and they were very patriotic, and they, they loved this nation. And they saw Roman Catholicism and the Jesuits as a threat to this newly formed U.S. of A. Washington was much more involved with his church than with early American masonry. I've read in books that he would attend a meeting probably once or twice a year at times. He was not very much involved in masonry. And a lot of times when these masons, these early American masons would get together, they'd talk about politics and the Bible and how to have a better society. So they were not influenced by the Illuminati at that time or by the Jesuits. So that's important to realize because uh, Freemasonry of today like to use George Washington as their poster child. And they tell the newcomers that, oh, George Washington was part of this group. Well, that group has changed over time. It's very important to realize that organizations may change over time. For instance, the Methodist Church of today 
is much, much different than the Methodist Church of 200 years ago, or when first organized by John Wesley, who was a, a great Christian man. The higher levels of today's masonry despise the values of the founding fathers of America, such as those found in the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, the U.S. Constitution, and, and our state constitutions, the Bill of Rights, and of course, those things and those words found in the, in the King James Bible. So all the founding fathers respected, respected all these foundational documents of America. Early American masonry embraced much of biblical Christianity and the principles of beneficent freedom. But see, the masonry from 1820 to today has increasingly become more and more anti-freedom, anti-family, anti-American, and anti-Christ. And you can read about this. There's quite a few books written, but one of them, I got a lot of this material from David uh, Barton's book, and he's with the Wall Builders, and he wrote a, a good book on this subject. So Freemasonry is, they give the impression that they're not connected with Rome, but they really are. They're all part of the New World Order, and they are connected. They're all part of Babylon. If you look at it, a lot of the practices of Freemasonry, that is a lot of their practices and their rituals and things like that. It comes from paganism. So here's another uh, agent of the great whore of Babylon. It'd be all the international bankers, like the IMF, the Federal Reserve System, and the people in there. These would include individuals in the past, especially the Rothschilds and their families, the Warburgs and the Rockefellers. These were the ones that were the international bankers, especially in the past. Now, it's the same basic family, like today would be Klaus Schwab, who I believe is related in a distant way to one of the Rockefellers. And he's the president or leader of the World Economic Forum. And we hear a lot about Klaus Schwab these days. And notice what he's part of, the World Economic Forum. So it's about the money. And um, so that's another group. And then, of course, there's the Council on Foreign Relations. This group was uh, established in 1920. This group of about 5,000 members has been aptly described as the ruling establishment in America. Richard Haas is the current president, or at least he was a year or two ago. And the CFR is a treasonous front organization for globalists and papists. It has been dubbed the deep state. New American calls it the unelected permanent government that has hijacked our country, end quote. That's from the New American the magazine. And of course you could, uh, so that's the Council on Foreign Relations. Then there's the Trilateral Commission, same basic kind of people. These are very rich, powerful people who own the money and control a lot of property. Then an, another organization of Rome, and, and I'm not going to name them all because there's a lot of them, is Opus Dei. It means work of God, and that was founded in 1928. And this is a Roman Catholic society of laymen and priests. And of course, there's individuals that are associated with Rome. The Habsburgs, powerful family that goes way back from Europe. The Rothschilds, again from Europe and England. The Rockefellers, I mentioned Klaus Schwab, Henry Kissinger, George Soros, Bill Gates, Maurice Strong. And the other day, I saw a photo, this is recent, Bill Clinton is meeting with the son of George Soros with the Pope. All three of them, there's a photo of all, only those three in the room. And uh, what were they talking about? Bill Clinton, the Pope, and George Soros' son. So all of these secretive societies and these elites are working together toward an antichrist world order. They are highly influenced by the Vatican and by Satan. The spirit that animates these conspirators is one of hatred toward Christ, toward morality, and toward humanity. Rome's agents often lie, conspire, assassinate, and corrupt the morals of people in order to further their ends. And this is sad. This has to be said because we are in the end times and they basically have already gotten control of 
probably all the institutions or the major institutions in America at this point. That's where we're at. And uh, so at the end of this talk, I'm going to give you some pointers on how to how to survive this this onslaught of anti-Christianity that we're seeing all around. So the papacy and apostate Protestant churches are giving rise to the beast, who is called the man of sin. He's also called the Antichrist. And in 2 Thessalonians, you can read about that. It says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3, it says, Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, referring to the day of Christ or the day of the Lord, that day shall not come except there come a falling away first, and we're seeing that right now, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. Who is this man of sin? Well, according to other verses, 1 John 2 and 18 and Revelation 13, this man of sin would be none other than the beast or the, the Antichrist. Now, there are small Antichrists too. Because in 1 John 2, it says, now there are many antichrists. But it also speaks of the antichrist. So that's what the churches are basically doing right now. They're lining up with Rome. And the churches are very, uh, very weak, to say the least. Uh, they're, they're worse than weak. They're positively rebellious right now. Uh, many of the mo most, if not all, the mainline churches. So after the beast gains global control, he and 10 nations will destroy the harlot or this whore of Babylon. And, and, because, and, and by the way, this harlot is riding the beast. That means it is giving rise to the beast too. So this harlot is producing the Antichrist, an Antichrist system. And out of this system will arise the man of sin. And who's putting him in power? It's all these forces I've just been talking about, the Illuminati, the Jesuits, and the Vatican, and Satan worshipers, and atheists, and all kinds of people. Anybody that's anti-Christ is, is helping right now to produce this, this Antichrist. So someday, the, the, the beast and the Ten Nation Confederacy will actually destroy this harlot that helped to put him in power. When Christ returns, though, he will punish all obstinate sinners and all who worship the beast or receive his mark. And Christ will, of course, defeat the beast and his forces, his armies. And this will, will be a great day. And then it says in Revelation 11, it basically says the kingdoms of this world will then become the kingdoms of Christ. Because it's said of Christ that he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. So if you're with on the side of the Lord Jesus Christ, you will win out in the end. So this is all under the fourth identifying mark of the great whore of, of Babylon. And it's all under the heading of this. The woman of Revelation 17 has a corrupting influence over the inhabitants of the earth. And that's what I tried to prove by, these, by all these uh, organizations and, and these agencies. So here's number five. We're identifying now this harlot. She is full of names of blasphemy. And you can read about that in Revelation chapter 17 and verse 3. It says, So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. Now, I believe it's the beast here that's got the full of names of blasphemy, but it's also true of the harlot. So what does it mean to blaspheme? It means to disrespect with words or to speak insultingly, to level insults at someone, and or to be irreverent in, in the words that you use towards somebody. That's what it means to blaspheme. But it also means to respect God and to assume the prerogatives of God. And let me quote from Haley's Bible Hamble, and uh, this is on page 732, quote, Popes claim to hold on earth the place of God, to have supreme authority over the human conscience, to forgive sin, to grant indulgences, and that obedience to them is necessary to salvation. How could anything be more blasphemous? And uh, that's from Haley's Bible Commentary. But here, I'm reading now a great, great book called 50 Years in the Church of Rome 
It's it's written by Charles Chinicky, who lived around the time of Abraham Lincoln. In fact, he knew Abraham Lincoln pretty well because Abe Lincoln uh, uh, helped him in a court case and helped him to win the court case. But this man, Charles Chinicky, and he wrote this book in 1886 was when it was originally written. And um, this is he's quoting now St. Liguri. This is what he says. If then you receive a command from one who holds the place of God, you should observe it as if it came from God himself. It may be added that there is more certainty of doing the will of God by obedience to our superiors than by obedience to Jesus Christ, should he appear in person and give his command. End quote. That's from Liguri, who's a Catholic, they call him Saint Liguri. Now, they're saying there that you should give the Pope more authority than the Lord Jesus Christ if he would appear on earth and actually speak to you. Now, that is uh, very blasphemous. And um, he tells about what they're up to. Uh, Rome, Samuel Morse, the one who devised the Morse Code, in 1834. He went to Rome, and he talked to Lafayette, who was a general, I believe, in France. And he came to realize, he heard right from the priests and right from a lot of people in Rome, that there was a conspiracy to overthrow America. And this took place in 18, yes, 1834. See, Rome never wanted America to be formed to begin with, uh, they, because they do not like free countries, freedom of thought freedom of religion. Uh, they want everyone to submit to the Pope, everyone in the world. And by the way, that's why the pilgrims came here to Plymouth Rock. They were escaping the heavy hand of the Dark Ages or the heavy hand of, of Rome. And uh, they wanted freedom of religion. And th thank God for, for the trip that they made to Plymouth Rock. Anyway, that's blasphemy. And uh, the Pope uh, is blasphemous in many other ways. So here's number six. This woman is arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls. The two ruling bodies in the Roman Catholic Church are cardinals and bishops. Cardinals are often arrayed in red or in scarlet, and the bishops are often arrayed in purple. That's interesting. So this church displays much gold and many precious stones. If you've ever been in there, I used to attend a Catholic church because I grew up Catholic. And yes, there's a lot of gold stuff in the church. Many claim that the that Roman Catholicism is the wealthiest institution on earth. And I, that could be true. That sounds true. So that's number six. Number seven, this woman has a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. That's, um, that's right from verse five in the same chapter. She has a golden cup in her hand. I'm sorry, that was verse 4, actually. That, that's a mistake. That's verse 4. So, during the Roman Catholic Mass, the people will see the priest hold a golden cup in his hand. In this cup, the real and physical blood of Jesus Christ is said to be contained after the priest, by a supposed miracle of transubstantiation, causes the pre-existing wine to be changed into the actual blood of Jesus. Now, this is a false miracle. It's a lying wonder. It's a mystery, something that's beyond comprehension. And it's something of which the Bible foretells would take place, this kind of miracle. Because in Revelation 18, verse 23, it says that, at the end, verse 23, it says, For by thy sorceries were all nations deceived. This is sorcery. This is a form of sorcery when the priest has so much power that he can call Jesus down from heaven, cause him to reside, at least his blood, in that cup. And of course, his body. Uh, his body turns into bread. And then when the people take communion, they are receiving the Lord Jesus Christ in that very act. That's what the Catechism teaches, and I'm right here reading the Catechism of the Catholic Church, 
and I'm reading on page 334, and it says this, quote, At the Last Supper, on the night he was betrayed, our Savior instituted the Eucharistic sacrifice of his body and blood. This he did in order to perpetuate the sacrifice of the cross throughout the ages until he should come again, and so to entrust his beloved spouse, the church, meaning their church, a memorial of his death and resurrection, a sacrament of love, a sign of unity, a, bind, a bond of charity, a paschal banquet, paschal banquet, I guess you, you would say, in which Christ is consumed. The mind is filled with grace and a pledge of future glory is given to us. That's right out of their, their, their book here. Here's another uh, quote. The Eucharist is the efficacious sign and sublime cause of that communion in the divine life and that unity of the people. And then on another page, we see, I've got to read this just so that you know that this is what they teach. They, uh, I'm on page 344 now. In the Eucharist, Christ gives us the very blood which he gave up for us on the cross, the very blood which he poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So when the priest drinks out of this golden cup, he is drinking not a symbol of the blood. He's drinking the very blood. That's what I'm reading right here. I'm reading more. The Eucharist is thus a sacrifice because it represents, meaning it makes present the sacrifice of the cross. Again, quote, the sacrifice of Christ and the sacrifice of the Eucharist are one single sacrifice. Here's another one, quote, In this divine sacrifice, which is celebrated in the Mass, the same Christ who offered himself once in a bloody manner on the altar of the cross is contained and is offered in an unbloody manner. So I don't know if I need to read more. Let me read you one more. Here's another quote. This is the next page. In the most blessed sacrament of the Eucharist, the body and blood, together with the soul and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ, and therefore the whole Christ is truly, really, and substantially contained. And that's in italics. They're stressing that. That's what they believe in. And then right after it says, it is by the conversion of the bread and wine into Christ's body and blood that Christ becomes present in this sacrament. Now, this is idolatry. This is a reenactment of the sacrifice of Christ. This is something that the Lord Jesus is absolutely opposing in every way. Now, I'm going to read in the Bible in Hebrews chapter 10 and beginning to read at verse 11. And it says, And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Now, he's referring to the, not the Catholic priest, but the Levitical priest. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. And right before that, in chapter 9 of Hebrews, it says this, For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now, once in the end of the world, hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this a judgment, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. And there are other scriptures that say that he offered himself once on the cross. That is the atoning sacrifice that we must believe in. And when Christians take part in the communion service, and when we take part of bread and the grape juice, or wine as they call it, when we do that, it is purely a symbol and a remembrance of what Christ did on the cross. That Those symbols do not get transformed or transubstantiated into the actual uh, substantial body of Christ, body and blood of Christ. So that's important to know. And so here's the golden cup in her hand, full of abominations. And uh, that is very reminiscent of what takes place every Sunday in the Mass, in the Roman Catholic Mass. It is, it's important to know that these words in Revelation 17 that I'm reading, which identify the great horror as papal Rome, they were penned in 95, 96 AD. 
This was about two to three hundred years before the Roman Catholic Church was beginning to take shape because it began to take shape after about 312 AD. That's when it began to take shape. By the end of that century, it was pretty much in shape. There's no way that the Catholic Church was founded by the apostles. No way. And the proof is just read the apostles. Read what the apostles wrote, compare it with all your Catholic dogma, and you will find out that they contradict each other. So the Catholic Church was being formed to about 200 years after Revelation 17 was written. What does that tell you? That proves that God knows the future because he foretold that this whore of Babylon would rise and control the world and, and have a, a, a tremendous influence over all the people of the world. And uh, so it did take place. So that's proof that the Bible is the word of God because only God knows the future. So that's number seven. Here's number eight. Catholicism is shrouded in mystery. And here I'm reading in Revelation 17, verse five, and it says, and upon her forehead was a name written, mystery, Babylon the great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. Okay, that word mystery means hidden. It means secret. It means occult. It means obscure or hard to understand. Many Roman Catholic operations are concealed in mysterious symbols, in secret societies, in conspiracies, and in sophistry, and in many rituals that are hard to understand. You see, when a Catholic takes communion, he's taking this wafer. Well, the priest is telling him, that's Jesus. But when you're taking that wafer, your eyes tell you, no, that's not Jesus. You can smell it. It doesn't smell like Jesus. It doesn't sound like Jesus because that wafer can't talk. There's nothing. Reason tells you that that's not Jesus. But the Roman priest tells you, yes, that's the body of Christ. So you're supposed to take your mind, throw it away, and just submit yourself to the ideas and teachings and to the realities in the mind of the Pope and in the mind of these bishops. So that's not healthy. So that's what mystery, so there's a lot of mystery associated with the Catholic religion. The perverted English revised version was completed in 1885, upon which all the modern versions are basically based, by the way. And it was done in secret by two Anglican but pro-Catholic scholars. One of them was B.F. Westcoff and the other one was F.J.A. Hort. Westcott and Hort, they're called. Jesus said, in secret have I said nothing. So anybody that does stuff in secret, especially when it comes to religion, beware. Because it's probably, there's probably something fishy about it. But that's, that's a good description of the Catholic Church. There's a lot of mystery associated with it. Number nine, Papal Rome is Babylon the Great. And it, it calls it right that in verse five. Mystery, Babylon the Great. So this system is rooted in Babylon. Old Testament Babylon. Well, if you look at Old Testament Babylon and uh, you study paganism from Babylon, and you will see that there are many, many, many similarities between what they did and uh, what the Catholic Church is doing. Prayers to Mary, for instance. Um, in Babylon, they used to pray and, and worship the Queen of Heaven. You can read about that in Jeremiah 44, chapter 44. Well, the Catholics have, have a woman that they, that they worship, and that's Mary, the mother of Jesus. The Roman Catholic confessional comes from Babylon. The unbloody sacrifice of the Mass comes from Babylon. You can read about the cakes that they made and they used in the worship in Babylon, in false worship in Babylon. They made cakes very similar to the wafer that the Catholics are eating when they take the so-called body of Christ. Christmas observance, Christmas observance and Easter, these stem from Babylon. They used to deck a tree. Uh, if you look at Jeremiah chapter 10, they would deck a tree and, and um, fix it with gold and silver and decorate it and and uh, stand it up and, and and worship it. Well, that's very close to the today's modern day Christmas tree. Baptismal regeneration, the idea that baptism can save your soul, that stems from Babylon. Justification by works or by rituals. 
Purgatory, prayers for the dead. These were all derived from Nimrod and pagan Babylon. These beliefs and practices are meticulously documented in a book called The Two Babylons, or Alexander Hislop, if you want to check into that. So it calls it Babylon the Great. Again, I don't know of any religion that is more in keeping with Old Testament Babylon than Roman Catholicism. Number 10, she is the mother of harlots. You can read about that in verse 5. The popes, cardinals, bishops, and the Vatican want all churches to be corrupt and antichrist, even as she is. They aim to be the mother church that brings all other churches under her spell. Instead of turning from their own errors and their own sins, they deal with their guilt by influencing others to be just like them. They perhaps feel safer if they are not alone in their sins. Drunkards tend to do the same thing. They go to bars and befriend newcomers and buy drinks for them because a drunker feels kind of good when there's somebody else that's going down their road. And that's Rome. They're antichrist, and they want others to become like that too. So she is the mother of harlots. And you look at Protestant Christianity, and almost all mainline churches are, well, I'm going to say all of them, are influenced by Rome in one way or another, in different degrees, of course. Alberta, Alberto Rivera, he was a convert to Christ who was once a Jesuit priest in the Roman church. He stated that he was required to pose as a Christian, use their verbiage, and infiltrate Bible-believing churches to corrupt them or to bring them under the sway of Rome. You know how you can tell if your church is being influenced by Rome? Just ask yourself this. Does your pastor speak against Rome, against the Roman church? If he doesn't warn against it, then that means they're kind of part of it. See, we have to warn. The Bible says that everywhere. It says, beware of evil workers. Beware of dogs. Beware of the concision. Mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned and avoid them. See, you have to mark them, identify them. And that's what I'm doing right now. Am I identifying a system that is a very dangerous religious system, but it's actually really more a a system of organized crime wherein they pose as Christians. That's really what they are. It's a criminal agency. But they have to have some kind of veneer that uh, tells the public that they love the Lord Jesus. So they call themselves Christians, but they're not Christian. Almost all so-called Bible-believing seminaries, just about all book distributors and churches in America have been weakened or subverted in one way or another by papal Rome. One proof of this opinion is that almost no mainline churches will expose the Roman Catholic Church as a cult and call her anti-Christian, as was done in the past. Calvin and Luther, Charles Chinnicky, Alexander Hislop, many people used to call this church antichrist, but they're not doing so anymore. That's proof that they're having a tremendous influence on us. And, uh, of course, another uh, proof that Rome has influence in many churches is that they use the modern Bible versions which are based upon the Westcott and Hort Greek text, which was produced by Anglicans who are Anglicans in name only. Uh, They were really more tied in with Rome than they were the Protestant Anglicans. Number 11, the Roman Catholic Church since their inception in the 4th or 5th century has done more than any other institution to persecute and murder faithful Christians. And that's what it says. In verse 6 of Revelation 17, it says, And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And you can read about that in other places in uh, like 18, chapter 18, verse 20 and verse 24. Verse 20 says, Rejoice over her, thou heaven, and ye apostles and prophets, for God hath avenged you on her. And verse 24, it says, And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all that were slain upon the earth. In her was found the blood of these good people. In her, referring to this harlot church. This is a quote from Haley's Bible handbook. Quote, The horrors of the Inquisition ordered and maintained by the Pope over a period of 500 years in which unnumbered millions were tortured 
and burned constitute the most brutal, beastly, and devilish picture in all history. End quote. That's in that book, page 32. But that book was written in 1927, originally, at first. So no true historian can deny this fact. The Revelation, the book of Revelation foretold that this would occur, which again proves that the Holy Bible is inspired by God and that our Bible is preserved. It's preserved by God because it foretold of all these people who are dying at the hands of Rome. And I do believe COVID was uh, another one of their measures designed to destroy people. And um, that's what they're, they've been doing for a long time and they're not going to stop. So we need, we, need, we need to be vigilant in these days. But more importantly than vigilant, we need to be virtuous. Verse 12, or should I say point 12 or identifier number 12, Rome is often called the city of seven hills. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sitteth. That's verse 19. The Vatican is situated at the foot of one of the seven hills on which Rome was built. That's a quote from Webster's Dictionary. 1828. So, uh, and here's another quote from the two Babylons, quote, no other city in the world has ever been celebrated as the city of Rome has for its situation on seven hills. Pagan poets and orders who had no thought of elucidating prophecy have alike characterized it as the seven-hilled city, end quote. And um, even you, you can even pick up the Dewey version of the Catholic Bible, and when it on this verse it will say it's referring to Rome, but they think it means pagan Rome before the year four hundred. See and notice they know when Rome started to take shape. It was around the year three hundred to to four hundred. Well, they say this refers to pagan Rome prior to the year 312, so to speak. That's why they take the preterist view of Revelation. In other words, they believe the book of Revelation has all been fulfilled, and uh, there's no way you could come to that conclusion with all the stuff that's written in here. Number 13, this is the last identifying mark of the Roman church. This woman has a strong and debasing influence over big business, big stores, big pharma, big oil, big tech, over the media, Hollywood, and I could go on. And here's the verse. It's in Revelation 18, verse 3. It says, For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication, and the kings of, of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth are waxed rich through the abundance of her delicacies. End quote. That's in Revelation 18, verse 3. A merchant, what's that? It's one who deals in the purchase and sale of goods. That's a merchant. A delicacy. What is that? That is anything that delights the senses. Rome controls vast amounts of wealth and through her front groups offers many delicacies to those who support her interests. She has helped to make big corporations very rich, very powerful, and politically correct. And I use that in quotes, of course. And, it, and also, that's why the big corporations are getting fanatical about the environment. Because remember, if we have to protect the earth, guess whose rights get taken away? If the earth has more rights than you have, then, of course, that's an attack on you. So the giving of rights to the earth and to the animals is really all about taking away human rights. It's the same way with feminism, the idea of giving women rights, it's all about really taking away men's rights, children's rights. It's all about taking away parental authority and parental rights. And you could go on. And that's uh, liberalism, or you could say communism. That's what they're doing. So I want to now ask a very important question. How can we overcome the influence of Rome and this whore of Babylon? Well, there is no greater engine of tyranny 
on this globe than Romanism, to escape her errors, her sins and influence and her destiny. We need God's help and we need God's guidance in a very, very big way. But how? Number one, we must resolve to trust and obey God's word much more than the words of popes, church teachings, church traditions, or Bible scholars. Here's a good quote from Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 23. Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and ye shall be my people, and walk ye in all the ways that I have commanded you, that it may be well with you. You want well-being in your life? Obey the voice of God. Now, how do you get the voice of God? You're not going to hear it audibly. The voice of God means, obviously, the written words of God. So you got to read your Bible and do the will of God as it is found in the Bible. And not just read and know the Bible. You've got, and I've got to, put it into practice in our lives. Walk in all the ways. Not in 99% of the ways of God. In all the ways, 100%. That's number one. Number two, we must believe Christ as supreme Lord and supreme teacher. Kind of like what I just said. Jesus says, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Just think of a, a weak oxen yoking up with a uh, a strong ox, a weak ox and a strong ox. Well, if the weak ox yokes up with that strong ox, life will be easy, easier for him. And that's what he's saying. In other words, submit your will to Christ. Learn from Christ, from his words. Submit to his teachings. That's what that's talking about. Number three, we must commit to Christ, who is the only Savior from sin. The priest will not save you. The priest cannot forgive your sins, not in behalf of God, now, if you sin against the priest and he forgives you because you apologize, then yeah, he can forgive you for your personal sin against him. But the priest cannot forgive you in behalf of God. If you want God's forgiveness, you're going to have to come to God for it. And the only way to come to God is not through Mary, obviously, because she's not omnipresent. And she has no dealings with us down here. But Jesus Christ does because his spirit is here. So the way to come to God is through his son, the Lord Jesus. The Bible in Matthew 1 says, For he shall save his people from their sins. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. And that's in Acts chapter 4. So that's what we've got to do, commit to Christ. You see how Christ is the answer? Here's another one. Number four, we must separate from religious Babylon. And if we don't, we're going to be punished along with them. Here's Revelation 18, verse 4. Come out of her, my people, that ye be not partaker of her sins, partakers of her sins, and that ye receive not of her plagues. Motivated by love for those being seduced by her, we ought to expose her and identify her as an evil system. But, we must speak the truth in love and pray for all people. Roman Catholic, it doesn't matter what religion a person is. We should pray for all people to be born of God, to be born again, to come to faith in Christ. So that was number four. Number five, we must exercise courage to obey all of God's laws and commandments always. Here's a quote from, Isaiah, uh, from Joshua chapter 1, verse 7. Only be thou strong and very courageous that thou mayest observe to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded thee. Turn not, to the, turn not from it to the right hand or to the left, that thou mayest prosper whithersoever thou goest. End quote. Very important. We need courage. It's not enough to obey. We need courage to obey. We need the faith to obey. We must, here's number six, we must stop trusting corrupt Bible versions. And the professional scholars, when they conflict with the Bible, that is, with the true Bible, which is the King James. So don't trust the, the new versions. Read the King James. For only the preserved words of Christ will be our judge in the last day. And that's what Jesus said. He said that in, in John chapter 12, verse 48. He says this, quote, He that rejecteth me 
and receiveth not my words, hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. Now, this verse proves that God's words, Jesus' words, will be preserved in the year 2020. This is proof that it will. Because otherwise, how can he judge us on the basis of his words if we don't have them at our disposal? So obviously, God will ensure and make sure that his words will be preserved on this earth. Now, you may have to do some work to get a hold of these words. And that's normal. It's kind of like God supplies food for us, but, you know, we got to do our part. You've got to at least go shopping and uh, get, make some money first and go shopping if you want some food, right? The food doesn't just come down in, in your house uh, automatically out of the sky. No, you got to do something. Well, it's the same with the words of God. You got to get yourself some money, buy yourself a good study Bible, King James, and then you got to spend some time reading that. And then when you read something and it tells you what to change, you ought to change it. Because when you change and you start responding to truth, God will then give you more truth. And um, so that's number six. Number seven, and the last one, I want to leave you with this. It says in Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, it says, And they overcame him, Satan and his forces, they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, that is, the blood that Jesus shed for us on the cross, by the blood of the Lamb, and by the word of their testimony. Don't be ashamed of the word of your testimony. Speak truth as much as you can to as many people as you can, whoever will listen. It's by the word of their testimony. And then it says, and they loved not their lives unto the death. Oh boy, that's it right there. Love Christ more than your physical life and watch what God will do through you. You will be so blessed. Oh, it might end your life early, but you will be in the presence of God and you will be in a, in a place of bliss forever and ever and you will be in the presence of the lord jesus christ and all these great saints that have gone before us you'll probably meet patrick henry george washington noah webster and you'll have conversations with these people and you'll meet the apostle paul and of course best of all you'll meet the lord jesus christ and you are going to worship him because you're going to realize that the only reason why you got to heaven was because Christ shed his blood on our behalf. He gave us his words and he preserved those words. And because those words were given and because his blood was given and because of his grace and his marvelous providence in a thousand ways and him keeping you alive and all these things, God, it's all going to be because of God's grace. And that's why you're going to worship the Lord Jesus because you will realize that it was because of God's grace that you got there that you arrived in heaven. So here's a thought. Without faith in the shed blood of Christ and without a love for God more than for oneself, we will not overcome. God bless you. Thank you for listening. May God help you to overcome in these days.